0: Yo, robot Don't worry, got to kick to me, radio. Da, 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 da. Don't worry, got to kick to me, radio. Da, 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 da.
1: Welcome, 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 geeks and nerds, girls and boys, to a brand new episode of Geek to Me Radio. Tonight, we are celebrating Batman, the animated series, 30th anniversary, with the woman who cast the iconic voices and directed the entire series of the show from the voice perspective, Andrea Romano, behind the scenes talk. Uh, about all the stuff she's done, who she enjoyed working with the most, her favorite memories, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, we we talked to her exclusively about this series, and the, we she and I talked for so long, it was almost an hour and a half we talked. But with that said, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Batman, and we're going to kick it off starting right now. I'm joined once again by a woman whose talent knows no bounds. She's always gracious with her time. It's Always my extreme pleasure to have her on the show, the one and only Andrea Romano. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you very much for having me. It's always nice to chat with you. You as well. Uh, you're just always such a font of information, and people love hearing from you because you've got all the, uh, you know where the bodies are buried, really, when it comes down <laughs> to <it. laughs> It's true. And this is 30 years of Batman debuted uh, in September, obviously, of 1992. When you look back and think of it, it must at, at some aspects, I would think it seems, oh, yeah, that was 30 years ago. Other aspects of it, it must seem like it was just yesterday.
0: Oh, it's mind blowing that thirty years have passed. It's absolutely amazing. Certainly, it doesn't feel like it was just yesterday, but it also certainly doesn't feel like it was thirty years ago. I, I, I'm always so amazed at the not just the longevity of the series, but the the fans still crave all the all the Batman stuff that we were able to produce. But the Batman the animated series specifically, people always seem to hearken back to that as Kind of the 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 benchmark for animated series that were action series, series that were based on comic books or uh, graphic novels or other material, but they they seem to really look to that series as kind of having set a benchmark for how animated series uh, involving, especially the DC universe, how. How they should be. Uh, it seems that that seemed to set a standard that everybody has had to kind of live up to, which is lovely because it was a, a high standard then, and it's still a high standard now. But it is some of the work that I am most proud of. Uh, the people that came to play. You know, it was it was a relatively easy sell as a casting director to call up an agency and say. I have this project. You didn't have to explain to them what Batman was. Right. Everybody knows, who, whether they were fans or not, they knew who it was. You didn't have to say, it's about this really wealthy guy who lost his parents in a horrible incident, and yet now he's into vengeance, and, you know, everybody knows who it is. And because of that, um, and because once we actually did get such a remarkable main cast together, many, many actors, either individually by themselves or through their representation, reached out to me to say I really want to be a part of that series specifically that Batman series because that's special and that's different and that's Asking for a different kind of animation voice acting than, when, than we had seen at the time. Uh, animation voice acting tended to be quite broad, really cartoony, if you will. And um, you know and especially with Batman, you think about, you know, before that, all that was really known about Batman was the Adam West um, live action series which was very cartoony, very broad, very comic. And that was my first introduction. And I... um I, I was very glad that the idea was to go for a much darker version. Not so scary that we'd frighten children, although we probably did scare a few. <laughs> um, but but it was it was much more about, let's do, you know, we talked about, Bruce, Tim, and I talked about the quality of the voices that we wanted um, d- different than what we were doing. For example, Bruce and I were working previously on Tiny Tune Adventures together and a couple of other series that were quite broad and quite uh, cartoon if you will. And we talked about we wanted it to be much more theatrical much more filmic if you will and so that was a a, quite a change in the way cartoons were being voiced back then and and it opened up a a tremendous number of actors to me uh, as a pool of talent than I had had before because a lot of actors who can do really good voice work for a show like Batman the Animated Series wouldn't necessarily be good on an Animaniacs episode Mm, or a Pinky the Brain episode so it suddenly opened up Lots and lots of of uh, stage actors, the, those kinds of actors who who mostly do realistic type work, but with a boosted energy, and so that and that works really well for animation. So I, I was I was so lucky to get in on it in, from the get go and to be a part of it and something that has had thirty years of fandom. Remarkable.
1: You mentioned so many things during that, uh, what you just said there. And one of the things that stuck to me, just what you said about how people wanted to be attached. I think, if anything, Batman may have kind of changed how actors look at animated series and voiceovers because it seems like prior to batman the animated series like you said there were your normal people who were fantastic at it the, the bj wards the neil rosses the you know who right. worked on all these things very very talented people frank welker but right. it's almost like then all of a sudden now when you fast forward 30 years we've got top level like a-list stars who do 20 million dollar motion pictures now say hey i want to voice a cartoon dragon in this in in my Absolutely. little pony or something
0: absolutely and i think there's many reasons for that i think part of it is a lot of those actors um with children relatively small children the, the kids couldn't really watch the on-camera tv shows that they were making say they were on a, a regular on a csi or you know ncis or any of those uh, procedural shows like that their young kids really couldn't watch them because they were either too violent or too graphic but batman the animated series their kids could watch not to mention how how um, how the, their children reacted to the fact that their dad was going to be, or their mom was going to be on a Batman episode. That, I mean, they, they became heroes in their own households just because, you're you kidding, you're going to be on a Batman episode? It, it <laughs> suddenly became this whole other um, thing. And many, many actors mentioned that to me, is that this is something finally that I'll be able to sit down with my kids and watch. Um, and, and so that was always kind of a nice thing. The other thing was that, actors um, actors like to act and before uh, this kind of show opened it up to actors who had more stage experience or film experience or TV experience um, bef- before that the only people that I was familiar with who were of celebrity status and you know that's always quite a questionable term, celebrity. You could be, you know, someone who has done 150 episodes on some show and I've never heard their name before because there's just so much programming that, you know, celebrity means, I guess, a known actor. But um, my point was they they come to... they 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 came to me to do voices. Whereas before, the only people I was aware of were people like Anne Margaret, who played Anne Marg Rock, yeah. and Stoney Curtis, Tony Curtis, and both were on the Flintstones. Uh, they both did Flintstones episodes but other than that you try to think back on people who are genuinely celebrities name talent that you would recognize them by their name only and and nobody was doing it it kind of was um, lesser you know they kind of looked down on yeah. voice work in general whether it was commercial voice work or movie trailers or any of the stuff it was like no 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 that's you know if you have nothing else in your life maybe you'll agree to do a voiceover and it changed after Batman and Super Man and Justice League and a lot of the shows that I was very proud to be a part of where people went, this is a remarkable art form where... We can show our skill, our talent at acting, but we don't have to memorize lines. We don't have to have a makeup and wardrobe call. <laughs> we don't ever have to come off script. We can sit there in front of a microphone and, and just read right off the page as long as we're acting. And so there were a lot of benefits for it. So it, it, it exploded. It really did. After Batman the Animated Series first came out, after, I would say after the first season aired, there was a major change in the way people wanted to come and play on in animation. And I'm curious because originally,
1: obviously, this was on Fox Kids, made its debut on Fox Kids, moved to Sunday nights uh, because it was a more, a, I want to say more adult theme, but it was aimed at a, a slightly older audience than your normal X-Men the Animated Series on Fox Kids or Freakazoid or something like that. So right, right. when that change happened, was that something that, that move was done on Fox's part because they realized that they had something special or just because ah, this is too adult. We're going to move it till a little bit later in the evening.
0: You know, maybe they need I, I, I don't have the answer to that question. hundred percent. I don't know for sure. But I would speculate that uh, a possibility certainly would be that they had a, a time slot. And what are we going to put in there that's going to get the best audience? And they went, oh, Batman: The Animated Series. Put mm. it on in the evening, and then you get the parents and the kids, and um, it's already got a following. So it kind of was a, a good, a good guess, a good, a good plan. Yeah, I forgot that we did, had, we were, and then we we're, were with the cartoon? Uh, not Cartoon Network, excuse me. Um, what was it called? It was the the network that was. Oh, you moved to the
1: WB, the- I think, right? Was that ever? Oh, the Kids
0: WB. That's it, Kids WV, That's yeah. right. It's not funny. So many, so many series, so many shows, <laughs> so sure. many networks, so <laughs> many platforms. I get them confused. Um, but yes, so it it had many incarnations. And you know, there was a period of time when, especially when we were working with Fox, where that just added a whole other level of people that had a say in what we could air what we could put in our script what they wanted to see and and the more people you put into that mix the more conflict you have as far as i want to see this i want to see that so the fewer people that we had that were sort of trying to put their hands on on our work made it easier for us Uh, and and um we sure did make a darn good show. I, I look at some episodes now and I'm, I'm just astounded at how good they were and how wonderful the talent was and how um, after I had, uh, by that point, by the time I was directing Batman the Animated Series, I kind of had developed a bit of a reputation as a voice director and as a casting director. Mm. And so agents kind of trusted me to give me their Top tier talent, knowing that they weren't going to come out of the session going, man, that was unpleasant. I always, (laughs) a big part of my job was always to make sure that it was a pleasant experience for everybody, which is a a main reason why I wanted to do the ensemble record. That's really pleasant. When you're all by yourself, isolated, and it's just me and the actor, I mean, we certainly can have a good time, uh, uh, you know, directing and acting against each other, but so much better to act with the actors who are really going to be doing the role, and so that we could play a scene, and I could run through the whole scene with everybody there, and then do pickups if we needed to, and then maybe run through the scene one more time, and we know we have it. When you record it by individually, everybody's recorded by themselves, you have to do so many more takes of every line because right. you're not sure what the next actor is going to do and what's going to cut together. And so um, I liked the ensemble record. I liked the comfortable uh, um, environment. That was a big part of my job, creating a comfortable environment for people to, to come and play. And also I often referred to casting because even after you have the main cast, there's a tremendous amount of casting that has to be done for um, guest stars and incidentals. Right. A lot. And so I had to really be, aware of who would work well together who would have fun who would I, I i often likened it to uh putting together the guest list for a party you know who's going to bring something to the party who's going to have fun with the other people who yeah. are there who's going to fit into this group and and that always seemed to make it a really positive experience and i, I i'm encouraged by that because People who were on the series, either as regulars or, or came in and guested, they often tell me that, that they couldn't wait to come in and see who I had cast as, <laughs> you know, they, they'd received the script a few days before we recorded. They're like, oh, who's going to come in and play Rachel ghoul Who's going to come in and play, you know, whatever guest star we had at the time? And, and I, I, I it became really fun for me to, to keep a list of people who had either reached out directly or through their agents or that I just thought of Um and then when the castings would come through, I would look and say, oh, you know who would be good for this is uh, David Warner. We haven't had him in a while or mm-hmm. so, so and so. And, and then that would be kind of a fun way to go through uh, many of the actors that I had wanted to work with. And to be really honest with you, it was a very selfish part of that <laughs> casting, which is uh, I would think about actors who I loved, whose work I admired, who I wanted to have the chance to direct, to you know see what they were like. And only a few of them, did I not manage to get in to come and play with me at some point during my career throughout some show. One of them was... um, the great Christopher Lee, oh, I, wow. I wanted so very much for him to come and play, and and he had expressed an interest, and he was happy to do it if he could work it into a schedule. If he was, and, and think about this: when we were making Batman the Animated Series, there was no ISDN line, there was no satellite right. recording at the time. We had phone patch, but that was a really bad. Set up. It was so rudimentary, and because Mr. Lee was often in London, in England, anyway, um, to set up the call there was a time problem. And then I'm basically listening to his session over a telephone line, an international telephone line, in the early '90s, and and then you just can't tell. You know, you just can't tell the phone lines were cut out, it would get staticky, whatever. So um, I needed to have him in the country at least uh, and available. when I, it, it didn't matter that he maybe couldn't make an ensemble record, but I did want him to be in the country so he could have the best connection anyway. And it just never worked. And when he passed, I was so sad because he was like one of those that got away. And the other one that is in uh, such a different end of the spectrum that I always wanted to come in and also wanted to come and work with me, I did meet him and we we chatted about this at an Emmy event one night, and that's Alex Trebek. Oh yes, I wanted so very much. And when I mentioned it to him at the Emmys, and you know, you can get a lot of people to chat with you when you're holding an Emmy in your hand. <laughs> I'm sure. And so he was very very kind and very forthcoming, and and I said I'd I'd love to have you come and play with me sometime, and and he got very animated, if you will. And he said, I, I can do many voices. And I said, I know I've heard you do them on the show, on Jeopardy. And uh, and that was just a matter of timing. We couldn't get him in. There was one show I was working on where I thought he would have been a great guest. And I couldn't convince the producer. This was not a Batman show. But I couldn't convince the producer. The producer wanted to use a comedian mm. doing a game show host. But uh, but those are the only two people I could think of that I really desperately wanted to work with. And they, they got away.
1: You mentioned uh, the great Christopher Lee, and obviously you mentioned the great David Warner, who sadly has just passed away this uh, earlier this oh, year. Which was so de- sad. I, as so as sad. a fan, I was heartbroken, but obviously you, who worked with the man and knew him, it must be a, a whole new level of sadness for for uh, someone who's worked with him on intimately on a set like Batman: The Animated
0: Series. He was a wonderful man aside from being a remarkably talented actor and i had met him a million years ago when i was a voiceover agent at an agency called special artists and he that agency was um at the time owned by and run by a woman named liz dalling a british woman and so she had lots of british contacts and very often she would have some wonderful british actor sitting in her office and she'd call me in and say this is david warner and he would i know who david warner is and he would like to do voiceover oh my goodness i would love to work with him And I I don't think he ever signed with the agency, but um, that's when I met him. So we're talking about the early 1980s is Mm. when I met him. And then he worked with me on several projects, including—and I, I, I admire him so much for this—you mentioned the series before, Freakazoid, yes. which was such a silly, cartoony, <laughs> wonderful show. And he played a character called a villain called the Lobe, and uh, we always referred to him as Loby. And <laughs> and it was such a silly character. And although he was playing an evil character, there were <laughs> there were instances where we we would do like a. a um, a musical version of an episode and uh, it was to take off on Hello, Dolly and it was Hello, loby <laughs> and, and, and he said, I, I must tell you, Andrea, I, I can't sing. And I said, all the better. That will only make it better because we want it to not be a slick, right. clean, you know, Broadway-type musical. We want it to be kind of off, and uh, so what a good sport! And then when Rachel Ghul, which is the character I wanted Christopher Lee to play, when he couldn't, and I thought, oh, David Warner would be so lovely, and what a great job he did uh, as Rachel Ghul. I mean, perfect! And then um, to have Olivia Hussey come and play Talia Al Ghul, which was just also wonderful. Just that was it was such a good show that allowed me so many opportunities to bring in remarkably good actors. And IMDb,
1: I, I, I looked up stuff, IMDb sometimes gets it right, sometimes they get it wrong, because I've had right. voice actors, and I've had directors on the show, and I'll say, oh, it mentions this, and they're like, no, that, that's not even close to accurate. So I'll ask you, uh, on IMDb, it does say Christopher Lee and Michael York were considered for Rachel Gould, but it also says Al Pacino was originally offered the role of Two-Face? No. That's not incorrect. That I know of. Not okay. from my
0: office. Okay, yeah.
1: I was I think okay. I saw that too recently. I was wondering like but, did he audition? Um,
0: did you just make him an offer? How did that work? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, I was never afraid to make an offer to anybody. What's the worst that could happen? They'd say no. Right. But every once in a while, someone would say yes, and you'd go, oh, Ed Asner wants to play with us as, you know, granny goodness in the, (laughs) in that, you know, all the, just those wonderful times when people would surprise you and say yes. And, and there were many, many actors who wanted to come uh, and play and, and really they just couldn't because availability. Mm -hmm. Some of these people were regulars on um, TV series that shot all week long, and I could never guarantee that I could get them. And, and I mean, there's been many times when we would record after hours or on Saturdays or Sundays or holidays, because the actor really wanted to do it. We really wanted that actor on the show and everybody was willing to give up their time on a weekend or whatever to get them. And that was, uh, that, that was a true compliment to the show. And
1: while we're on that same subject, it also says both Leonard Nimoy and Anthony Hopkins were offered the role of Mr. Freeze before it went to Michael and Sarah. Any truth to those
0: two? I don't believe that's true either. Okay. I, not not through my office. I, I didn't. I I I, I, I have no, absolutely zero recollection of that. No, somebody Bruce him may say, "Oh yeah, well, it was early on, and we sent out him a letter, knowing that they would say no." But I, I truly do not recall that, and um, I I, I kind of was aware that that. That particular caliber of actor wasn't necessarily going to come and play because, as I said before, voice acting had not yet fully become what it is today. Speaking of which, I just voted. I finished voting yesterday on the the upcoming Emmys, and um, I'll tell you, it made me very sad that in the voiceover category – they lumped in uh, people who were doing sort of narration on live action series, as w- as well as people who were doing genuinely cartoon voices for cartoons. Well, oh, that seems a bit of a disparity. But it's not even that so much as what bothered me was that uh, you know, and I did the initial um, nomination list, which was listening to just dozens and dozens and dozens of submissions. But the people who were ultimately nominated, all of them. Were celebrities. There was not one rank and file actor huh. submitted for the Emmys in voiceover, and that made me really sad. There were no Tress McNeils, no Hank uh, uh, Azarias, no um, you know the one, John DiMaggio's. None of these people who really do the, the heavy lifting yeah. uh, in uh, in voiceover, and, and I, I I'm I'm disapp- I was disappointed by that.
1: Not even a Billy West on the list. That's sad. None of them. Uh. None of them. Exactly. It's it's always interesting to see when you know you talk about the caliber of actor. We I, I think since the last time I talked to you, and it was shortly before he passed away, I did have the pleasure of speaking with Ed Asner, and I'd asked him about this, the kind of Batman adjacent because obviously he played Roland Daggett in Batman the animated series, but you offered him the role of Granny Goodness, and he told me. If anybody but Andrea Roman who had offered me that role, I would have said they were crazy. He said I trusted Andrea
0: implicitly and Aww. I was glad to do it. So he Aww, it's, it's Thank kind of, you for telling me that. Thank you for I loved him so much. All these wonderful actors that we have lost recently. It just breaks my heart. It it also reminds me that we're all getting a little older as time is going on. But but that delightful um willingness to be silly and, you know, Ed Asner worked for me a lot on a lot of different series, everything from the boondocks to, uh, you know, people like Marion Ross, who would come in yeah. and play characters. I had to say, you know, really uh, dark things, but they, they did trust me. And and I, I I wanted them to trust me because I wanted them to know that ultimately I would not let them leave the room, leave the studio unless we were all happy with the performance and, you know, I I wanted them to be comfortable with what they were being asked to do. And, and if something came up and you mentioned Michael and Sarah, specifically uh, Mr. Freeze, when he first came in to do his first episode, um, we got all through the whole thing. And I thought he had done an excellent job and we finished it. And Bruce, Tim said, I, it's not, It's not what I had in mind. It's just not quite right. And I said, okay, stand by one second. And I hit the talk back and I said, Michael, can you stay just a little bit longer after I release the cast? Oh, sure. And so everybody else left and he stayed. I always referred to it as staying after school. And Uh we redid all of his lines. Now, he already had full context. He knew what the actors had done on the line before his line and the line after because he had been there in the session. So I didn't worry so much about recording him all by himself. And we just played with the voice until we found something that everybody was happy with. And we spent another maybe 40 minutes re-recording his lines and then we all just fell in love with that character. I was not a very big Mr. Freeze fan before that. His performance is so nuanced and subtle. And and I, I was unaware of the... Um, his history. You know, I had to always go to Bruce Timm yeah. or Paul Dini or Alan Burnett and find out, wow, what's the deal with this? And then, and oftentimes, that, it was a good thing when I had to ask because they would think we, sh- we have to include some of that in the episode so that um, the fans who don't know the characters get a, a better sense. But, you know, his, his loss, uh, his loss of his wife and and the coldness that we added to his voice was not just because of the freezing, it was because he was heartbroken. Yeah. He literally had his heart broken and it made him unable to have normal emotional um access. And and he and Michael added that to the voice in such a simple way that was it wasn't robotic. It wasn't icy and 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 cheesy. It was cold and embittered. And I
1: just, I loved his performance. And Heart of Ice, the episode you're talking about, if I'm not mistaken, that was the very yep. first episode of Batman the Animated Series that was nominated for an Emmy, correct?
0: How Am I cool is that? I don't remember, but how
1: okay. cool is that? I, I, I th- love think that. That's true. And, and Kevin Conroy has talked before, obviously he, Kevin makes no secret of his love for Mark Hamill, but he said Michael Ansara is probably one of the best people to be in the booth across from of any of the villains who came in. He highly speaks of uh, Michael Ansara as well. Wonderful. You know,
0: what was so weird, I'm I'm very glad to hear that, and... Kevin I adore him so um, but I it's interesting because if you were to be in the same in the studio with me to watch me record I I had to stay on the script meaning my eyes had to stay on the script a lot because uh, I had to make sure that they weren't dropping a line or dropping a word or that we were getting or I would have to check the stage direction to make sure that if the character needed to be running during that line I told the actor that so they would do the line <laughs> like they were running and um, so I didn't always get to look up and watch the actors work. And I always felt like I I missed a little something by not being able to just watch the actors because those kind of things would happen. What I would do is I I did like to have the setup when possible be in a a horseshoe, meaning that the actors could look across the horseshoe at each other Mm -hmm. and try not to put people talking to each other uh, in scenes seated next to each other, because then they would have to turn their heads to look at the other actor, and that would get them off mic. And so their voice wouldn't sound right anymore. So I'd, t- I'd like to try to put them, set them up across from each other so they could actually look up from their scripts and act into each other's eyes. And there's a wonderful drawing that my husband did. My husband is a character designer and a caricaturist. And he came to watch Mark Hamill do an episode of with the Joker. And he drew this fantastic caricature of Mark... And it's also a bit of the Joker in the caricature in front of the microphone. He's working. And it it does really explain how Mark looked different Hmm. when he would act as the Joker. His physical – he would always stand because he just gave so much energy to that character. You really couldn't get enough breath sitting. But he would stand and he would kind of attack the microphone in a way different than if he were playing – some other character. And so uh, that's always kind of fun to watch. And I remember one episode... I remember the actor was Chad Einbinder. Chad Einbinder is the father of Hannah Einbinder who is now the the second star on Hacks, the series Hacks. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And Chad worked for me quite a bit and um, I remember him in an episode of Batman I forget specifically the character but I remember hearing Bruce Timm say to his, I don't know if it was the storyboard artist that was in the session with us or the director, the animation director, say, say I remember Bruce saying to that person, watch Chad as he does this line because that's exactly Exactly how I want you to animate the character when he's saying that line. So that kind of thing is so cool to watch Hmm. the actor embody an animated character. Really wonderful to see that kind of thing.
1: And uh, since you brought that particular aspect up, I'm going to ask you again to see if IMDb trivia got it wrong. It says that Mark Hamill was the only member of the cast allowed to perform while standing, I can't imagine that you're like everybody has to oh, stand there. No, in their no, seat. no, 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 absolutely wrong.
0: That's absolutely <laughs> okay. not true. I, I was yeah, like, it's you're still so right. Weird. IMDb gets it wrong sometimes. They really do. I, I, am not even sure who inputs the information for IMDb, but that was not true. I, I always suggest that people stand. I think you have better breath control. I think you have more um, willingness to move your arms. You know, which is perfectly fine as long as you're not wearing noisy clothes or noisy jewelry. And I, I, it, I think it's very hard to act. Uh, fully in an animated project, if you 're sitting and not moving your arms at all, some people can do it very well it 's not a problem for them, but I think that they they have more flexibility and more uh ability to draw upon physical things, for example, if an actor is standing behind a microphone and you need him to do the sound of lifting a very heavy rock and throwing it, if they 're just sitting in a chair with their legs crossed and they try to go <laughs> That's one thing. If they're standing and they kind of bend over, staying on mic the whole time, and they kind of bend over a little bit and uh, uh, it's a whole different sound. And I, I just think that that physicality helps make it more real.
1: And I'm curious, too, obviously, during the course of the series,
0: ran for 85
1: episodes for the original Batman in the animated series before we got to Batman the New Adventures and everything else, uh, you had some people obviously were replaced uh, through whatever reason. Uh, Clyde Revel was replaced by Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. as Alfred. You had uh, right. Arlene Sorkin obviously as Harley Quinn was replaced later on by Tara Strong who also replaced Melissa Gilbert as Batgirl. When you're when right. you have a new actor coming in for the role. As a voice director, do you kind of want them to stay kind of towards what had been done before? Do you let them kind of... Because we're seeing the same physical animation of the character. The the look for Batgirl did not change. The look for Harley Quinn did not change. How do you approach that with a new actor in the same role
0: on something like this? That's a very interesting question. I, I, I... A lot of it depends on why the actor was replaced. Clive Revel um, only had the first one or two episodes or very few episodes of the Batman Animated Series and then came to me and said, oh, by the way, I'm leaving next week on a world tour of some play he was doing, and uh, he was going to be all over the country and the world. and As I said before, we didn't have the technology to follow people around Mm -hmm. to record them from wherever they were. So that was a purely logistic reason. We just couldn't get him when we needed him. We were recording approximately a show a week, um, every week. And so I I needed faster access to him. That's why we replaced him with Ephraim. That said... I love Defram, and I think we were so lucky to have him. And and he was actually our second choice. Mm. And the only reason he wasn't our first choice was that Clive actually is a Brit, actually is British. Yes. And so we thought, okay, Alfred is British, let's hire the true Brit. But... Um, I I thought Ephraim's performance was so sensitive and lovely and wonderful, and it's so funny because recently my husband and I have been watching a couple of different channels that air some of the really early black and white shows like 77 Sunset Strip Mm -hmm. and these series that you see someone like Ephraim Zimbalist as this incredibly handsome young man, and when I was working with him, he was already well into his 80s, I think, Mm -hmm. and so elegant and so lovely and so grateful for the job and he would also be sitting there in the room waiting to see who, this, who the other guests were that I had brought in for that week. He was just delightful. <laughs> um, as far as Harley, I think that the reason we replaced Harley was had to do with also an availability issue with Arlene. I just don't think we could get her. And so um, that was Tara. And then what was the other – uh, Melissa Gilbert, yeah, Batgirl. Yes, uh, there was. Uh, so, the the reason that you know we didn't want the voices to change so drastically that people would go, "Oh my gosh, that's not Batgirl," or "Oh, that's not Harley," we we wanted them to still be able to buy into the fact that this is a valid voice for that character. But I I never asked asked anyone to do an impression of the existing voice, mm-hmm. uh, unlike say a show like not even a show I worked on, say like any of the Charlie Brown stuff, the, the peanuts stuff. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, over the, my career, I probably saw 10 different kids resumes with the credit of the voice of Charlie Brown. And that's because there weren't that many kids because they kept growing out of the voice, you know, about the 10 year old voice and that happens with boys, their voices change. (laughs) And, um, So, But that was always an attempt to find someone who sounded just like the first Charlie Brown. That they wanted to remain consistent. Anytime they had to replace the kids, they wanted it to sound as close to the original as they could. We weren't nearly as as keen on that as much as creating a, a... a bona fide voice for a character that the audience would embrace and that the actor felt comfortable doing. And I think Tara did a great job on all that. And, you know, there were times when, depending upon other projects, when the characters would appear that people would say, we don't want to use the same voice for Harley. We want a different voice for that. So possibly, I can't even tell you what series it is, but I know that I used Hinden Walsh quite often at Mm. Harley. Uh, and that was a different a different version. They just were different. And it wasn't uh, it wasn't because somebody wasn't doing the job or anything. It was just that it was requested of me to have a different person voice it because it was put, meant to be a different project.
1: And when you think of I know this is, I think, just a general thing, people think of Batman the Animated Series. They, the two names they probably close, besides the actors, obviously, they think Bruce, Tim, Paul Dini. I'm surprised Eric Ramdowski doesn't get mentioned more since he was right there from the beginning. He worked on that and Mask of the Phantasm. If I'm not mistaken, he was the one who came up with the idea of using black paper instead of white paper for the idea. So I'm surprised he doesn't get more, I don't want to say more love, but more credit, I guess. It seems like it always, people talk about Bruce, Tim, and Paul Dini.
0: Me too. The three of them really were the, the combined... Uh, brain trust of the series and they worked together to creating so many different aspects of what now everybody just assumes Batman sounds like or looks like or moves like and uh, and that's really cool by the way um, I love when people say You know, whenever they think of Batman, it's Kevin Conroy's voice that they hear. Whenever they think of the Joker, it's Mark Hamill that they hear. And that's a huge compliment. Also, I mean, the artistic style was just so beautiful. I loved the way Batman looked and the the dark look of it and the, the kind of what they call it dark deco i yeah, think was the style yeah, that they, exactly. they termed it and, and it was really a, a really interesting one wonder- there was nothing on the air like it when it came out and and that's always a, a really kind of scary thing because you don't know if people will embrace it or not but here we are 30 years later and and parents are turning their kids onto it and yes. the kids are into it so it's now multi-generational which is just amazing
1: We just uh, finished up at Terrific Con in Uncasville, Connecticut uh, last month in July, and there was a a guy, obviously, probably about my age, who obviously, like I did, grew up watching the animated series Batman, and he had his his son, I'm going to guess the kids maybe five or six, in a Kevin Conroy Batman animated series Halloween costume, taking him (laughs) up to meet Kevin Conroy. I'm like, if that doesn't speak to the power of this show, I don't know what does.
0: Absolutely. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. (laughs) <laughs> Very cool. Oh, we mentioned- I, and there's also, you know, I, I may have told you this story before, and I apologize if I'm repeating myself. But um, my sister sent me an article once from the New Yorker, and it was an article about what the inmates at Rikers Island were watching what they watch when they were allowed to go into the rec room and watch. And they would talk about how in the morning they would watch some of the uh, soaps that aired and some of the game shows and whatever. And then they'd have to go back to their cells for a head count. And then they would rush back to the rec room to get the best seats to watch Batman, the animated series, <laughs> Superman, and Pinky and the Brain, uh, which all, were all three of my series, the yeah. three series that I directed, which made me laugh thinking I, I was unaware that this was a demographic I was reaching out to, but it made me really happy. Now, the reason I brought that up was I was, you know, the, I, I miss doing in-person comic cons. I, I'm still too nervous to do them. I think of them as cootie cons mm. because there's just still too many cooties out there. But um, I remember this one kid coming up to me and... I wish I could tell you I remember exactly what it looked like. He was a young man. He was probably 18, 19 years old. And he looked like he could be tough, you know, like a really tough kid. And he said, Andrea, Batman the Animated Series changed my life. I was clearly headed on a path toward being part of a gang, Robbing people, stealing people, doing drugs, and then I discovered this thing I could go home to after school, and watch, and get into, mm. and see that it it, it 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 wasn't the right path for me to to be evil, and and it turned my life around. And I thought, now that's a demographic I didn't know I was reaching. No kidding, wow. How cool is that? That we we literally changed his life. We literally convinced him. That uh, you could still be dark, but not be evil. Because that's what Batman is. He's dark, yeah. but he's not evil. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I know Kevin said before that if I'm not, and this is, you know, Kevin's saying this, so maybe he remembers it differently possibly, but he he said he was the last person all of you saw for Batman because you just could not find who you wanted to be. Bruce Wayne Batman, and that he was recommended because he's a theater person. And that kind of opened up, I'm not sure if it was just you or if it was other people uh, who were working on the series, to, hey, we need to start looking at theatrical people more for these voice roles.
0: Absolutely. Uh, that's partially true, and, and, and it's just a little bit off, but absolutely. It, uh, the the Bruce and I had gotten, I, I probably told you this for sure, I, I listened to, I think, thousands of voices for that series, initial casting, because there were a lot of regulars on it, so every character had many, many submissions. And then for Batman specifically, I called back, I think something like two, golly, I'm forgetting my numbers now, hundreds. I think 200 people I called back for the voice of Batman. And we had gotten to the point where Bruce and I were like, "Mm, there's three or four guys that could play it. But that's hardly a a rave. You know, that's hardly a rave. For a character like that, you want. And so at the time, I was living with a dear friend of mine. that We'd gone to college together, both of us in the theater department. And I asked him, and he was an agent at the time representing actors on camera. And I said, can you, is there anybody that I, and I showed him the list of all the actors I had read and um, I said, is there anybody you can think of that I should see that I haven't? And he said, you know, there's this wonderful actor named Kevin Conway. He's Juilliard trained. He's uh, on a couple of soaps. He's got lots of theatrical credits. He's terrific. He's he's got a beautiful voice. And so we brought him in and and this was near the end of the casting process. And I think he was in for the final callbacks. And And when he spoke and we could see that he totally understood the character. He had done his homework. He He likened it to Hamlet, so yeah. already he was on my good side. <laughs> and, um, and and you know, just totally nailed it. Now, the thing about uh, theatric, that did open up a bit to the ap- theatrical actors, but I already was on board about bringing in actors with stage experience, because I learned pretty early on that those kinds, back when I was at Hanna-Barbera, that actors with stage experience understand that slightly projected energy, that slightly boosted energy that you have to use on stage as opposed to people who had only worked on film and tv which is very small mm-hmm. and very intimate and that doesn't always work it works sometimes in animation for feature films where a, a tiny little gasp is is very effective on a big screen with right. magnificent you know sound and everything but for tv those kind of subtleties don't always work it has to be a little bit bigger a little bit broader but not you know the smurfs You know, we're not doing SpongeBob SquarePants. (laughs) It needs to be. And so I was a big fan. And and, uh, when I was at Hanna-Barbera, the casting director there, um, I was working with Gordon Hunt, who had been the casting director at the Mark Taper Forum. So Mm. he knew a ton of actors who he thought would be very good for voiceover. And he and I would sit together and go through lists of actors and go, oh, you know who would be fun for this? Let's bring in Nancy Linare. Let's bring in B.J. Ward. Let's bring in, you know, Jeffrey Tambor. So all these people that had, done work with gordon when he was at the taper and you worked with a lot of obviously
1: directors on the series too from kevin altieri boyd kirkland uh, frank Parr, dan reba who we've had on the show before was there one i'm not asking you by any means to pick your favorite director but was there one director who you kind of felt a little more simpatico with who you just kind of like you guys automatically connected and kind of got what the other was going
0: for during your sessions oh that's interesting you know they were uh, I, I can't answer that question exactly, but I can tell you that there was nobody that I had to work with who didn't get what I was doing. Mm. So I, I didn't have trouble with any of them. Because sometimes you do. Sometimes you get a, an animation director who's just got a completely different view in mind than what... And the other thing is, you have to remember is all of these animation directors are doing, say, one in five shows. Right. Yeah. So they're they're either coming into the session or, or whatever for one in five shows. I'm doing every single episode. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if somebody says, I want this character to be more this way, I can say, you know, I've already done three episodes with this character and that's completely contrary to what we've established. And then, you know, we discuss and figure it out and, and work it through. So it was always good to have one voice director who understood what was going on for continuity, just surely for continuity. But I, I, I can't say there was any one director that I just loved. They, they all were terrific. Just the same thing with writers. They came up with, you know, the Bob Goodmans and the, the wonderful people, the Paul Dinis and these people who came up with these fabulous stories and, It was quite a a family, I would say, for Batman the Animated Series. It was a a family that that started together on a very positive note and, and made it through decades of continuing to work and produce shows that we all could still be proud of. And
1: some of those Alan Burnett, uh, Tom Ruger, you mentioned Paul Dini, Martin Pascal. I know we've talked about before when we had you on to talk about Justice League that you weren't a comic book person. You didn't grow up reading
0: comic books, but there uh, were... I did not. Not not the action ones. We, we didn't have them in, in our house at all. We Well, we couldn't afford them, number one. <laughs> and our school said that they were of the mind that uh, comic books were written up to a fourth grade level. And then after that, you're, you're regressing. Oh, wow. If you're in sixth grade and you're reading a comic book, you're reading at a fourth grade level. I'm still regressing. So, I don't it, know that I case. agree with that, <laughs> but, but that's what they said. And so we weren't encouraged to read them. And we, I, I just didn't have them around. The very few that I did ever see were either the romance comics or like Jughead, you know, Archie yeah. and, you know, that stuff. I never, I never, ever read a Batman comic book or a Superman or any of that stuff until I started working on the show.
1: And then that begs the question, too, because a lot of the writers who are credited in the series are the stories were brought from the comic books. Obviously, and again, I feel horrible because I'm reading the names of people who are no longer with us, like Denny O'Neill, Len Wein, Steve Englehart, Neil Adams. So when there was a script that comes in and let's say it's based on one of the Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill stories, did you personally say, "Okay, where is that comic book? I want to read it to take direction. Or did someone else like. Did, did the, uh, like, Tom Ruger or something, I've read this, here's what we're going for, and kind of, how did you approach that?
0: You know, that? when... Bruce Tim was a very good uh, determiner of what I needed to see, and so uh, much more later when we started making the movies. Did that's what I always read the graphic novels or the comics that, that that they were based on. I mean, there's a couple that we made that were practically page by page with yeah. of pra- the comic book was was the, the storyboard for what we made, but the. Um, as far as the animated series, I rarely ever read a comic book uh, unless I was. You know, I just went to the. <laughs> I went to the source. I went to Bruce <laughs> Tim and Paul Dini and Alan Burnett and said, "Can you guys tell me who the heck this guy is? Who is Scarecrow? Who is what's this guy's story? Who is this? You know, I never heard of this villain before, uh, and, and that kind of stuff." And and while I really did love those stories that were based on comic books. Uh, and, and specific stories that were created in comic books, I loved the ones that the guys came up with on their own. Yeah. Where they just... Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I can't even tell you exactly which ones those are, but, or that I recognize them at the moment, but uh, people uh, who had been reading Batman comic books, actors who would come in, they'd say, oh my gosh, I recognize this from blah, 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 or whatever. I, I, I liked the ones where it, it was just... Um, it came from their love of the comic books and but creating their own stories. And I, I love that. I, I think maybe there's a Batman in my basement. That might be one of those types yeah. of episodes and stuff like that, where it was just clever. And and it had to do more with what we were doing than what had been done previously by other artists, meaning the writers who wrote the comic books.
1: And to the credit of the show, uh, we mentioned before Heart of Ice, Mr. Freeze's origin. That was not technically his origin in the comic books, but now it's been retconned in the comic books that, yes, what happened with him and his wife and everything, that is the new origin definitively in the comic books. And again, with Harlequin, uh, Detective Rene Montoya, both of those characters introduced in the series are now players in the comic book. Rene Montoya has gone on to become the new question in DC Universe. It's, it's amazing how these characters something? have found
0: life of their own. How about Harley? I mean, every time I open up, you know, the, the Emmy submissions, I'm like, "There's another Harley show in there." <laughs> there's another. Uh, my goodness, and there's so many of them, and many actors have played her, and there's all these different incarnations and stuff. And I thought that was totally an invention by Bruce and Paul. And what a fantastic character! And you know, you you walk around on Halloween, and there's tons of people dressed as Harley they just love that character and how cool that uh, that our guys created it it wasn't just uh something that some other uh, artist had created years ago that we that we used D- during your work obviously you uh, you
1: know it, it's kind of i don't want to say disappointing but it, it's 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 uh, every single person i've ever spoken to Tim Daly, uh, Tara Strong, whoever I've had on the show, Alan Burnett, who's talked about you, never says a bad thing. So either you you've like you've I I think like you're you've got a Dorian Gray portrait in your poster where it's uh you know that mm-hmm. that the, there's this dark side of Andrea Romano just no one knows about but no one ever says anything bad about you and it's uh, they say they <laughs> love working with you. Everyone from Bex Taylor Klaus, everyone said rave reviews about you. So I'm curious, when you're working that closely with these actors and they trust you, are there ever changes to the script? They come about as you're working with an actor to find a certain voice or to get a certain emotion on that the the writers are like, Okay, you know what? We need to change this because what Andrea and Kevin are doing, what Andrea and John Glover are doing is really good. We're going to change the script as a result.
0: Absolutely. You know, the rehearsal was kind of my favorite part of the recording process because you could flub and it wasn't a big deal. And um, and you discovered things. And so when I would rehearse the cast, they would all come in and be mic'd at their microphones. And I would go into the studio with them, not behind the glass, but in the same room with them. And um, and I would direct through the episode, rehearse through the episode with them there. And every once in a while, something would happen where an actor changed the line slightly, not even realizing they were doing it. And we would go, Oh no, that's better. Let's use that line. Or, um, we'd be rehearsing a scene that called for it to be a very loud scene for whatever reason. And, um, and and it would just occur to me that somehow this might be a more effective scene mm. if it's actually played very quiet. And so we might try that and, and check with the producer at the time or the director or whatever and say, well, can that work for you because that's more interesting? And then another another thing that would happen sometimes is – when I was this is the one chance that I would have to, to, to look up and look at the actors and look them in the eye as we were going through some of this work, and I would sometimes come up off of the script and I would read them into a line say an actor wasn 't there for that session i'd read them in and i would I, I would just be doing the line in general i wouldn 't have it exact and, and every once in a while uh, the writer in the room the, the Pauldinis or whatever they 'd say oh no that 's actually a better line that line makes more sense let 's change it to that so everybody was very agreeable to um, the idea of of if something organically happens in the session let's go with that there's a reason why that happened if it, if, if there's nothing that would preclude us from doing that um, and, and there have been times when I remember we were working with i think it was Peter Weller on uh, one of the uh, movies and and he had a question of a genuine Excellent question about why blah 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 and Bruce and I discussed it with him all three of us intelligent adults having a discussion and he came up with a better solution for those you know that little sequence of lines and that 's what we used and now that's also working with an actor who's a really good actor and also is a director himself yes and so you get a sense of Uh, camaraderie, and and the fact that we're not doing this in a vacuum. We're all doing it together. And so that was another thing that I tried very much was to let actors know that I was open to ideas they may have. And, And Dietrich Beto, when we were making The Brave and the Bold, he would often just sort of raise his hand like in class and say, I have a pitch for you. Okay. And he would say, how about if I were to say this instead, and then she says this, and then I respond with that. And we would I said, let's let's run it. Let's see how it works. And we would try it. And if it worked, we'd use it. If it didn't, no problem. But I love that actors were that engaged and that sort of possessive of their characters that they would sometimes say, I think I have a better idea, even than what your excellent writers wrote. Just because they're they're playing the character. And so I love that. I love that. So yes, that would happen.
1: Tim Daly recently told me that Andrea Romano did not suffer fools. There'd be that's why everyone loved working with you and working with other people because it was only pleasant people who you would cast. Was that a oh, conscience decision? Like, oh, this person's got a bit Absolutely. of a reputation. I'm not going to even even see them or anything Absolutely.
0: like that. There were times when I would call up to ask for a certain actor that I hadn't worked with before. And the agents, because they knew me so well because I'd worked for so many years and I had been an agent myself, so I I understood their side of the story as well. But I would call them up and ask for a certain actor and they would say, Andrea, it won't be a pleasant experience. Mm. Don't do it. I know he's my client. I know I should pitch him and sell him. But I know you, Andrea, and I know your cast, and I know that that would not be fun for you. You won't like it. And so I was very grateful for that honesty and for that input. Um, and and there were times, too, And I remember calling up actors, like watching something, uh, an on-camera series, I remember calling Nathan Fillion um, after an episode of, I think it was Castle at the time he was doing, and there was an actor that I heard that had this fabulous voice, really gravelly and wonderful, and, and it was a, a guest star he was doing on the series. And I called up Nathan and said, I, I want to use this guy. Is, is he a good guy? Would he understand what we do? Would he have fun? He's like absolutely great guy, exactly the kind of people you like to have. So I was never afraid to do the research I needed to because I didn't want anybody in there to wreck the beautiful energy that I had built over years. And somebody to come in and just, and we did have a couple of situations where I had to replace people who came in there was one guy, I will not mention him by name, but he came in and I had wait, been waiting for years to use this actor and he, uh, his availability was just dreadful. And finally I got him and he was going to do two episodes of this one show. We were going to record, record it both on the same day and he came to the session drunk. Oh my gosh. And and I didn't even know he was drunk. I just knew he was behaving Poorly. And the girl who used to lean over the actors as they signed their contracts and show them where to sign, sign here, sign here, sign here, initial here, she was the one who came to me and said, You know, he's drunk, right? why he's being so weird. And I had to replace him because he just, it was a villain character and I know he could play it. His on-camera work showed that he could play it, but he just kept saying, I I can't get any bigger than this. This is as big as my voice will go. And I'm like, no, I know you can do more. (laughs) And I worked with him and I kindly, and I I just tried. But, you know, when you have that kind of... uh, affectation, which is the drunken, you know, I, I can't battle that. I, I, I can, I can deal with an actor's mentality, but I can't deal with, uh, uh something that's physical impairment. There. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly.
1: So that, I wonder, and again, I'm not asking for specifics or anything like that, but how does that work? Do you, do you kindly let the person finish their session or it be like, you know what? We got all we need. You're good. Thanks for going. How does, how does that work in a situation like I that? I do let
0: them finish the session. I do let them finish the okay. session. And basically what I say, uh, I take my hand off the talk back and I talk to the people who are in the room with me and I say, I'm just going to walk this person through the rest of the episode. Don't give me pickup notes on this person. Don't. Do, we're going to replace him. Um, just just let me get through it and we'll talk about who to bring in next week to replace him. Mm. So I, I never like. As a matter of fact, there was one time when an actor was brought in, this was not a show I was casting, but someone was trying to find someone who was a musician, actually a singer, and he had the same name as an actor in SAG, and the casting director hired the actor in SAG who was not a voiceover actor, who was not even a really serious working actor, and the guy came in and he was, you could tell clearly this was the wrong guy, mm. and he was, it's, you know, when, when you see a script and things are written in parentheses like scream or gasp, you don't say that word, you do the action, right? And so this guy's reading his script and he's like, What are you doing here? Gasp. <laughs> like, oh, oops oops, okay, and I would take my hand off the talk back and say, let me just get him through the session, and then we'll, we'll replace him. But no, I never want to hurt an actor's feelings. I don't ever, I mean, I was an actor. I, they're so sensitive, and and that's what you want. You want a sensitive human being to mm. be voicing these characters. You don't want a, a technician. You want someone who's, you know, putting their heart into it, so then to, to thrash them in some way. And, and, you know, someone once called me the, um, the velvet hammer. They said you beat <laughs> up people, but you never can tell because they're, you know, because I would, I, I would keep working with them until I got what we needed. And, but I always did it with respect and kindness. And eventually I would give them a line reading. I, I didn't like to resort to that from the get go, but after five, six, seven takes, if they weren't getting it, I would just very quickly say, echo me and do the line the way it needed to go, and then they would do it, and before they even knew it, they had been line read. Hmm. So that was a trick, was just get it back. And the, the truth of it is, while I loved their ideas, I had been, uh, and have been, working in the animation industry for so long, I knew what would work. I knew what we needed. That didn't mean that there weren't other options, and if the actor gave me that, we would always go, hey, you know what, that's not what we were thinking, but that's kind of better than what we were thinking, let's use his version. But For the most part, I had to get the one take that I knew would work.
1: And I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know we're coming up on the time limit here. Uh, one of the things I was wondering, because you worked on Batman the Animated Series, so many, we, we've listed at least a dozen names already of just fantastic people from Mark Hamill to Ed Asner, Michael Ansara from Zimbalist Jr. Uh, with all these different characters you've cast, you obviously have been doing this. You had a great instinct uh, because these still are definitive voices for a lot of these characters. But was there one or two people who you knew they were the right person, but they came in and just leveled up in front of your eyes and like, this is better than I even dreamed, be it Adrian Bar. Carbo as Catwoman, Paul Williams as Penguin. Was there any person who you recollect? Like, wow,
0: I am even blown away. You know, that was practically every time. It really was because you, you hope that they'll be wonderful. You hope that they'll 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 get it. You know that Paul Williams would come in and, and understand that we wanted him to play the Penguin. Slightly cartoony, slightly broad. Certainly not the uh, Adam West series, you know, uh, Burgess Meredith Penguin, <laughs> but uh, but then they suddenly. It's not just the the performance; it's also their generosity of spirit and their generosity of of. <clears throat> this is going to sound so ridiculous. Their generosity of storytelling. By that I mean. The first time Mark Hamill came in to work for me, it was not as the Joker, it was a guest star role. And at the time I didn't even know he wanted to play the Joker, I just knew he wanted to be a part of the series. And so we brought him in as a guest. And he did a terrific job. And afterwards he pulled me aside to tell me I really want to be a part of the series. And then it just so <laughs> happened that we had to replace the joker, it worked out perfectly. But while you know, what happens is you rehearse the show, you record the show. You give the actors a break. I get notes from everybody who's in the booth with me, whether it's the animation director or Bruce Tim or the writer or whatever. We get notes, an uh, 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 editor saying there was an overlap there. We have to fix that. Anything like that. And during that time, the actors just chat. Well, Mark was so generous with his Star Wars stories. I could see, even though I couldn't hear them because we mute the microphones, I could see the whole cast. Their mouths just. Wide open, just looking at Mark telling these fabulous Star Wars stories, and then you know Paul Williams. We're working on an episode, and we needed a, a, a melody, and he goes, "Oh, you could how about blah blah blah? Use this." I said, "Paul, we need to use something that won't cost us thousands and thousands of dollars that you've written. <laughs> it needs to be." But he was—I mean, his instinct was, "Let me give you a song." And how how kind and generous that is. Um, so so there was never—I always hoped that they would bring it. And it it almost always happened. It was very rare that I ever had to replace an actor because, as I told you before, I would keep them after school, and work with them until we reached a wall that we just couldn't get through. If we just couldn't get there, I wouldn't beat them up to the point where I'm just making them feel bad about themselves. But yeah, and probably after I hang up this call, I'll think of some other fabulous person <laughs> that that did do what you're asking. But I mean, it happened almost on a daily basis. I I still am in awe of kevin conroy when he Mm. performs Uh, it's just it's shockingly good it's it's you know you hear when you prep as a voice director when you prep a script you you hear it in your head you hear the performance and more often than not that's what would come out of these actors mouths is exactly what i anticipated and and then sometimes it's something different and and wonderful and usable and fantastic but but the connection was always, and i and I wanted to say this before we were talking about people saying nice things about me, by the way, thank you very much for that. <laughs> um I love actors, I love actors i having been one, I understand them, yeah, yeah. and what they go through every day just to get the gig, not even. To, to, to do the work, but to get the gig, it's so heartbreaking and random, and you just never know why you got that one and why you didn't get that one that you really wanted. And, you know, trying to get from one place in town across to the other place in town so you can get in an audition and not be late or get to the gig on time, and all the stuff that an actor has to go through, I have such respect for. And I think that played uh, largely into... Um, why actors liked working with me. I understood their process. Mm-hmm. I understood what their problems might be. I understood a lot of their insecurities, which I was able to help them get over. And, and so I, I think that's why there was a mutual respect that they knew they could trust me, that I wouldn't embarrass them. And that they uh, would be able to do their very best work. And and it always um, amazes me when you find directors who either don't like actors or don't respect actors. I kind of think, why are you in this? Right. Maybe do another job. (laughs) Maybe do something else. Because it's a magnificent job. It's a wonderful career. It's it's in the entertainment industry, but it's not the the pressure of an on camera series. It's not the lots of pressure, not to say that it was an easy gig. Right. But you know, some of the, the the limits put on people who are working on, you know, feature films and stuff is so overwhelming. It's kind of like what's happening to a lot of the sports people who are either retiring from sports or retiring from Promoting things because mental health, Yeah, you know, Holland, you need to have that, yeah. your head about you. And so, uh, but anyhow, I, I, I was delighted to have this career and I'm so grateful that people, um, responded positively to it.
1: And I've got just one last question for you before I let you go. Uh, obviously, yep. we think of Batman, Riddler, Two-Face, the Catwoman, these larger-than-life characters. All these street-level people like Bob Hastings as Commissioner Gordon, uh, Bobby Costanza as Bullock, and Ingrid. Yeah. I hope I'm saying right. Ingrid Olu as uh, yeah, Renee Montoya. Right. When, we're going right. to have Ingrid on the show here uh, as well. Casting those people and also working with those people, they're they're not over the top. They're not superheroes or supervillains. Was it a different experience or did you approach working with those types, the the street level, everyday characters, differently than you did when you worked with uh, the superheroes or supervillains?
0: Very interesting question. Um, I don't think my process was any different. I think I I treated them, you know, there was something like, um, there's always a thought like this. Uh, For example, with Bobby Costanzo and Bob Hastings, both. Excellent actors, excellent in those roles. They're what we call actors who have voices with character. Their voices are kind of recognizable. Uh, You know, even recently, my husband and I were flipping around, we are watching a Gunsmoke episode. I wasn't looking at the screen. I hear Bob Hastings' voice. I'm like, hey, that's Bob (laughs) Hastings. Because it's a voice of character. You can recognize it. Bobby Costanzo, you can recognize that voice. It's just a voice. It's a fantastic, fantastic character voice. So as opposed to people doing character voices, which is what Mark Hamill is doing, for example, for the Joker. Um, But so I, I like using actors. Who have character voices, whose voices, their voices are already identifiable. The problem with it is you can't use them as secondary characters in the show in the same episode where they're playing the main character. So I couldn't use Bullock as a thug, um, where you always want to be able to use actors for as many voices as you can. Three voices uh, gives you a benefit, a, a, a price break. Yeah. Um But I, I liked that they had recognizable voices. When Bobby Costanzo would open his mouth, uh, would appear in an episode, uh, and the initial entrance would be an off-screen voice, you knew it was Bullock. You know, <laughs> he would say, hey, what's going on over there? You knew it was Bobby. Yeah. If, if you, you know, heard Bob Hastings say, you know, Batman, get down, you knew it was Bob Hastings. And you knew it was Commissioner Gordon. And so um I... I I liked using some of those guys. It it did make for a very large cast, which I loved. Um, But it it, it did also require that when I would bring in um, secondary characters or guest stars that I brought in more of the rank and file actor who can do multiple voices. So I could bring in a Rob Paulson who could do three voices for me. He could be, you know, the the maitre d at the restaurant and the sidekick to the penguin and, uh, you know, the telephone operator. You know, those kind of, somebody could do three voices all in the same episode that you wouldn't be recognizable. But, um, no, I didn't, I didn't treat it that differently. It really was, you know, there were specifics like, For uh, Montoya, we knew it had to be a female, we knew it had to be Latina. And so that limited, you know, always, always, always I tried to book actors who were the ethnic background that the character was going to be depicted as. It didn't always happen, but, you know, the Screen Actors Guild was very good about saying um, you have to prove that you tried. Yeah. You can't just say, eh, I'm not going to try to get a Latina. I'm going to try, I'm just going to book a-, a white person and just be done with it. That's wrong. So, um, but sometimes, you, like, what you had to prove to SAG was, I did, a really large search. I didn't find anybody who does it better than this Caucasian actor. uh, And that's where we're going to go. And so then usually they'd say that's fine. But but it's wrong, I think, for people to just, you know, hire a Caucasian actor when the character is going to be depicted as black. That said, there would be characters sometimes who would just be described as cashier or clerk or whatever. And you can't tell what sex they are. And almost invariably, whoever I would cast, if there was a, a woman on the session who was playing a, a guest star role and she could play the clerk who has the line of, here's your change, sir, inevitably, when the animation came back, it would be drawn as a male character. Yeah. I don't know why that would happen <laughs> so often. So we'd have to go in an ADR with somebody else and, and, and try to fix it. But it was um, – but those kinds of things were always like – Uh, They're just as important as the big characters, just as important. Uh, I wanted to make sure that the show maintained quality, that it wasn't, oh, the main characters are so good, but the guests are really kind of meh. I wanted to make sure everybody was. And then, you know, the more that they came in to do work, it, the more the, the better they got and the more the writers were inspired to write more episodes for mm, them. Yeah. So that was always kind of a fun thing to watch a character. I always thought there should be more Riddler episodes. There's only like three or four of yes. them. Yes. And I love that character. But uh, they only ended up in like three or four episodes. I don't know why. I, uh, they I'm said it was sure something was to do with
1: good. working out all the plots and the puzzles was uh, overly complex they felt uh, from what i again oh. we've already proven okay. imdb is wrong on several things so i'm not going to i'm not going to say that holds much water uh, but uh, but
0: that makes sense at least that would at least make sense
1: yeah yeah well, as I don't want to keep, I know it's always been, I I could literally have you on for another two hours to talk to you about everything. <laughs> I'm always, always, always appreciative of your time. You've been on the show several times now and it is literally never gets old talking to you. You are absolutely brilliant. Thank you for your time and thank you for thank the, you. bringing us Batman I animated
0: series. It, thank you so much. It's a pleasure always talking with you. And I hope that we get a chance to see each other again soon at, live at one of these comic cons as soon as this pandemic is truly over.
1: I agree. Yes, that's definitely on my list because I've met you the one time. I've got the one group picture, but uh, I I would love to to actually see you in person again and uh, chat some
0: more. Absolutely. Thank you so much for reaching out. Thank you.
1: city good night Hey kids are your parents about to buy you a shiny new toy from Amazon
0: Hi I'm Chucky wanna play
1: Well don't be selfish share some of that money with us bit.ly slash geek to me, bit.ly slash geek to me.